section two of tales of english minsters canterbury cathedral kent and st paul's cathedral london by elizabeth wilson grierson this librivox recording is in the public domain section two canterbury cathedral kent county part two but now comes in one of those incidents which make these old cathedrals we are learning about so full of interest and such wonderful links with the past for king swain of denmark died just when he had succeeded in conquering england and canute or canute his son reigned in his stead this canute was a wonderful man one of the most wonderful men in history from a heathen and a barbarian he turned into a christian and a wise king in his time the english people had peace and by the justice and wisdom of his rule he taught them to forget that he was an alien and a foreigner among his other good qualities he had a great care for god's house and god's ministers and when it was told him how sixteen years before his father's followers had murdered the archbishop of canterbury he immediately set to work to make what reparation lay in his power he had st alphage's poor crushed bones taken from their humble grave at greenwich and brought back in solemn state and with all the marks of honour he could render to his cathedral church which in the years that had passed since his death had been rebuilt and restored and after the bones had been laid to rest beside the altar the great and powerful monarch whom every one looked up to and feared lifted the golden crown from his head and handed it to the clergy asking them to hang it up at the head of the great cross which hung in the nave as a token that he was sorry for and would fain have undone the cruel deed of his countrymen soon after alphege came two foreign archbishops lanfranc and anselm whose names will live in history although they were friends and fellow-countrymen both of them being italians and although they came to canterbury from the same little norman monastery they were very different in character the story of the little monastery itself would interest you had i time to tell you about it how it was called the monastery of beck because it stood down in a wooded valley beside a little beck or stream how the first abbot Erlin, was a soldier before he turned a monk how he was so poor that he had to build his first tiny house with his own hands and how he was making an oven when lanfranc found him out and asked if he might join him but we must pass over all that and go on to the time when Herlin was dead and lanfranc was abbot in his stead now lanfranc as well as being good and learned was what we call a practical man that is when there was anything to be done he not only saw the very best way to do it but he would do it himself if need be or direct other men to do it and the norman duke william when he conquered england needed such men to help him to arrange matters in his new kingdom so he sent for him and made him archbishop of canterbury there is a very pretty story told of how william and lanfranc first came to be such friends at the time when the duke got into trouble with the pope because he had married his cousin matilda lanfranc was abbot of beck and not being afraid of any one not even of william himself he sided with the pope and made no secret that he did so william was so angry when he heard this that he ordered lanfranc to leave normandy at once 
the fearless abbot obeyed and set out from his monastery on the only horse he possessed which was very lame and went hurpling along on three legs of course he did not get on very quickly and william who was foaming with rage and who had ridden to beck himself to see if the abbot had obeyed his orders overtook him in a narrow lane can you picture the scene to yourselves the angry duke on his great charger and the humble monk with all his worldly belongings strapped on his back jogging along on his poor lame jennet thou shouldst obey my orders better and make more haste to get out of the country said william haughtily give me a better horse and i will go the quicker said the abbot good-humouredly with a twinkle in his eye it was the soft answer that turns away wrath for william was so amused that he burst out laughing and ever afterwards the two men were the best of friends and william took lanfranc's advice in everything indeed lanfranc was almost as great a man in england as the conqueror himself and to his credit be it said he used his immense power wisely and well like st dunstan he was more of a statesman than a priest yet he found time in the midst of his law-making to attend to his cathedral which had been allowed to fall into such a state of dilapidation that it was almost a ruin he pulled down what remained of it and built it again and we can see some of his work in the crypt by and by the norman king died flung from his horse if you remember at mantes in france and his friend the norman archbishop only lived long enough to place his crown on the head of his son william rufus or william the red then he died also and the archbishop's throne at canterbury was empty now red william was a very different man from his father the conqueror had been stern and ruthless but he had ever cared for the church and for good men as someone has said of him he was stark to rebel and barren but he was mild to those who loved god red william neither feared god himself nor honoured those who did so instead of appointing a new archbishop to fill lanfranc's place he left the throne of canterbury empty and put the money that belonged to it into his own coffers it was very wrong and very wicked but it did not trouble him at all until one day he was seized with illness and was like to die then he was frightened i am afraid we cannot say he repented but he was frightened and his thoughts turned to the man who was abbot of beck in lanfranc's place the name of this man was anselm and he was the most gentle loving and saintly abbot you can imagine he was so kind and humble and altogether good that his fame had spread not only through normandy but also through england it chanced that at this particular time he was on a visit to england and the sick king sent for him and much against his will forced him to become archbishop anselm did not in the least want to be archbishop he was a great student and he would much have preferred to live on quietly at beck but when the post was forced upon him he did not shrink from the responsibility but stood up bravely for what was right and because of this he had a very troubled life for after all the red king recovered and when he recovered he broke all the promises which he had made on his sick-bed and persecuted poor archbishop anselm because he would not do what he wished him to do driving him out of the country and heaping all manner of insults and abuse on him until i think the sweet-tempered old man must have been almost broken-hearted 
but he never agreed to do what he thought was wrong and yet he never grew bitter and discourteous but was always meek and gentle and forgiving and at last after rufus was dead and his son henry had recalled him to england he died peacefully at canterbury and was buried beside his friend lanfranc in the nave of the cathedral lanfranc's tomb has disappeared but if we go into this little chapel far up in the choir we can see where anselm's remains now rest as we stand beside his grave shall i tell you a few stories about him they are worth telling for they show us what kind of a man he was and i think when you have heard them you will agree with me that of all the great men who have sat on st augustine's chair and whose bodies have been laid to rest here there is no one who deserves the name of saint more than he did as i said before he was an italian and he was born at eosta not so very far from the birthplace of st hugh of lincoln it is a very beautiful country where rich valleys run up among the snow-tipped alps and where little anselm was picking bright spring flowers in the meadows or playing in autumn in the harvest fields he could look up at these great snow mountains whose summits seemed to touch the clouds there is one story told of him when he was a child which reminds us somewhat of the story that is told of st cuthbert when he was a shepherd lad among the hills by the tweed anselm's father was a violent and passionate man but his mother was a gentle good woman who used to take her little boy on her knee and tell him about the great god who lived up in heaven and from his throne directed all the things on earth and little anselm who was a thoughtful child used to ponder these things and when in the mornings and evenings he saw the rays of the rising and setting sun light up the tops of the mountains turning them into rosy pink and burning gold he made up his mind that heaven was up there among the snow peaks and that god's palace was just where the light was strongest and he thought so much about this that one night he dreamt a dream he dreamt that a call came to him to go to the mountains to the palace of the great king so he rose from his bed and set out and it seemed to him that before he reached the mountains he had to pass through yellow harvest fields full of ripening grain there were a great many maidens there reaping but instead of working hard they were idling their time away talking and laughing to one another and all at once anselm seemed to see that these were not ordinary peasant maidens but that they were servants of the great king who lived in the palace on the mountain tops and he made up his mind that when he got up there he would tell god how idle they all were thinking thus he went on his way up and up until at last he reached the heavenly palace and there to his astonishment he found only the great king and his chief butler for all the other servants had been sent into the valley to reap and as he stood and looked in through the door the lord called to him and told him to sit down at his feet and asked him his name and where he came from and what he wanted and the lad answered all his questions as truthfully as he could only i think that he forgot to tell about the idle girls in the cornfields for he would begin to see that he too was a little servant of the king and that he had not always worked as diligently as he might have done 
then the lord ordered his butler to go and bring some food to the weary little lad and the man brought the whitest bread that anselm had ever seen and he ate it and all his weariness vanished then he awoke and lo and behold he was in his little trundle bed at home it is a quaint and fanciful story is it not yet it influenced the whole of the great archbishop's life for he really believed that he had been in heaven and that god had fed him and ever afterwards he realized what is so hard for most of us to realize that heaven is quite close to earth not somewhere very far away and that if we will we can do our work here on earth as the girls in the harvest field might have done with their eyes fixed on the glories of the king's palace and this taught him not to draw a line as we all are apt so to do between what we might call his everyday work and his sunday work to him one seemed just as sacred as the other because he was a monk and abbot of beck he had to be a great deal in church and say a great many prayers and study the bible but he found time to do common things as well he was always ready to sympathize with anyone in trouble and to give them advice or to go into the classroom in the monastery and listen to the teaching there and he would take notice of the dull boys and try to show their masters how to make their lessons interesting so that they would learn them more easily and at night when all the rest of the monks were asleep he would go softly into the infirmary if there was any monk lying sick there and sit beside him and shake up his pillows and if he were very ill as one poor man once was he used to peel grapes and squeeze the juice between his hot lips to try and moisten his poor parched tongue he loved all animals once after he became archbishop of canterbury he was out riding near windsor with his attendants as they rode through the forest they startled a hare and immediately the young men and their dogs gave chase there was no chance of escape for the poor frightened little creature and at last it came and crouched down stupefied with terror under anselm's horse everyone crowded round laughing thoughtlessly at the easy way in which it had been captured but the tears came into the archbishop's eyes at the sight of its distress and he ordered all the dogs to be called off and allowed it to escape but although he was kind and gentle he was no coward as we read before william rufus behaved very badly to him because he would not obey him in matters where he thought the king was wrong this made rufus very angry but Anselm did not mind. He spoke out boldly and let the monarch do his worst. Once William summoned a great council of bishops and barons to decide what should be done with this old man who cared more for God's smile than for royal favors. I am afraid some of the other bishops were cowards who wanted to please the king, so they did not defend Anselm as they ought to have done, but turned against him because they saw he was likely to get into trouble and be driven out of england the council was a noisy one some of the members said one thing and some another and they all became very excited while the king grew more and more angry and what do you think anselm did to whom it meant so much do you think he sat listening and trembling and begging his brother bishops to come to his help not a bit of it he made his defence in quiet, dignified words, then, seeing that everyone was so angry that they could not decide what to do with him, 
he rose quietly and walked out of the hall telling them that when they had made up their minds they could come and tell him then he went into the church and said his prayers and sat quietly down to wait and when at last the bishops came to look for him they found him leaning his head against the wall having fallen into calm sleep it was no wonder that such a man was not afraid of the anger of kings and that at last even his enemies came to admire his peaceful holy life two and now we come to the most famous archbishop of all thomas a becket known as st thomas of canterbury somehow we do not think of him as a saint in the same way as we think of st cuthbert of durham or st hugh of york or st anselm who were content to eat poor fare and live in rough lodgings and face hardships and go weary journeys for the sake of christ and his gospel but all the same thomas a becket had a courage of his own although he was haughty and headstrong he lost his life rather than yield to the king in a matter where he thought he was right and we cannot help honouring any one who is ready to die rather than be untrue to his convictions this is the story of thomas's life after william the norman conquered england large numbers of his countrymen flocked across the channel among them was a silk mercer of rouen called gilbert Becket he settled in london and set up a little shop in cheapside and he seemed to have prospered greatly for in a course of time we find he became portrave of the city which was something like being lord mayor he also built a chapel in st paul's churchyard which shows that he was a wealthy man he had one little son named thomas and a gentle pious wife who was very kind to the poor and who was in the habit when her little boy's birthday came around of weighing him in a pair of scales against a pile of money clothes and provisions which she afterwards carried with her own hands to destitute folk who needed them the boy was brought up in luxury as befitted his father's wealth and position and he had for his friends all the young norman nobles and barons he went to oxford then to the university of paris and when his education was finished he was one of the gayest and most fashionable young men in london he was very daring and very witty and there was much that was noble about him for he was ever true to his friends true to his word true even to his favourite animals one day he was riding out with a party of his companions on a hawking expedition when his hawk tired with the chase fell into a mill-laid and too exhausted to rise from the water was in danger of being carried by the current under the mill-wheel to every one's astonishment her master seeing her danger flung himself from his horse and plunged into the water and at grave peril to his own life rescued her it was a brave deed and we feel that we should have loved the young gallant who took so much trouble for the sake of a poor tired bird at last something happened which must have seemed very hard at the time to the handsome young man although he did not regret it in after years his father the rich merchant lost nearly all his money and his son had to look about for something to do instead of merely amusing himself as he had hitherto done he was clever and well educated and he determined to become a priest thinking no doubt that with his abilities he would soon obtain a comfortable appointment 
now it chanced that at this time the country had fallen into a great state of misery and confusion king stephen had been chosen king in place of his cousin matilda and although he had been forced to sign the great charter he had not held to the promises made in it but governed the country so badly that bloodshed and crime and lawlessness prevailed everywhere things were in such a state that it seemed almost hopeless to dream of better times and had it not been for the strength and prudence of one man these better times might not have come that man's name was theobald one of the archbishops of canterbury he determined to invite matilda's son henry who was count of normandy and anjou to come to england hoping that the english people would take him to rule over them when stephen died and that he would prove a better king than stephen had been he wanted some one to help him to carry out his plans however and the brilliant young scholar priest who was of norman birth himself and who was on friendly terms with all the english nobles seemed the very man to aid him so thomas a becket came to canterbury to be the friend and confidant of the archbishop i expect that he was delighted as any young man would have been when he got the appointment thinking that his fortune was made i wonder what he would have thought as he rode down the leafy kentish lanes to his new home if he could have read the future and seen how the remainder of his brilliant stormy life was to be connected with it how he was to be enthroned as archbishop and die a violent death there and there also be laid to his long rest at present however everything looked bright becket was sent over the sea to invite the count of anjou to come to england henry came and was accepted by the english people as heir to the crown soon afterwards stephen died and he succeeded to the throne and it was only natural that he should show great favour to the young priest who had taken such a part in placing him upon it so becket was made chancellor of england and as he was about the same age as the new king the two young men became great friends they rode and hunted together and sometimes played jokes with each other just like two schoolboys when the king had a war with france becket fought for him at the head of seven hundred knights in fact the youthful chancellor was much more of a soldier and a courtier than a priest but once again a great change was coming in his life archbishop theobald died and to everyone's astonishment especially to the astonishment of becket himself henry insisted that he should succeed him the truth was that henry had made up his mind to lessen the power of the church in other words he wanted to have the right to rule the affairs of the church as he ruled the affairs of the nation and he thought that if becket being his bosom friend became archbishop he would help him to do this but he did not know the man with whom he had to deal he had very little respect himself for the church or for religion and misled by his chancellor's gay dress and reckless manners he thought that he had the same but although up till now becket had been more of a soldier than a priest down at the bottom of his heart he had a strict sense of right and wrong and he knew that if he were to be a worthy archbishop his life must be different to what it had been he was quite content with his office of chancellor however so he tried to persuade henry to appoint someone else to the primacy a fine figure you are choosing to lead your monks at canterbury he exclaimed when the king spoke to him on the subject pointing to the rich garments which he wore when henry insisted he spoke more gravely 
you will soon hate me as much as you love me now he said for you assume an authority in the affairs of the church to which i shall never assent but henry was determined to have his own way he did not dream that any man would dare to oppose him and becket became archbishop then came trouble trouble that lasted till the end henry demanded more power in the management of ecclesiastical affairs becket refused to grant it it is a sad story a story of a broken friendship and hasty words whose consequences could never be recalled we cannot help admiring becket although perhaps he was too unbending too ready to stand on his rights as soon as he was made archbishop he changed the whole manner of his life he had been gay and heedless and luxurious before now he was grave and self-controlled and lived much more plainly he had told the king before his appointment that he did not intend to yield to his demands and he held to his decision although every one even the pope urged him to give way a little at last the quarrel became so great that his life was in danger and he had to fly disguised from the country he was absent for six years but never once did he think of yielding although it became plain to every one that by holding to his own opinions in the way he did he was really putting himself in the wrong at last henry paid a visit to normandy and met his old friend now his enemy at a place called Tredeval. after some argument he agreed to let bygones be bygones and to allow becket to return to england but the reconciliation cannot have been very complete for no sooner had the archbishop departed than henry exclaimed impatiently will no man rid me of this turbulent priest alas these were like other angry words spoken in haste without any thought of their consequences and the king repented of them all his life afterwards for there were four of his knights standing by when he uttered them fitzhurst morville de tracy and lebret who took them for permission to murder becket and without further ado they determined to follow him to england meanwhile the archbishop had reached canterbury in safety and had been greeted by a joyous welcome from the people of kent who had ever loved him dearly and had once more taken up his abode in the palace now let us go into the tiny northwest transept which opens from the north aisle the chapel of the martyrdom as it has come to be called for it was here that the terrible deed took place that filled not only england but europe with horror we will not remain in it at present but go through this low door at the opposite side and then we shall find ourselves in the cloisters you all know what cloisters are the long vaulted stone corridors or arcades where the monks used to spend most of their time when they were not in their cells or in church reading writing or talking these cloisters almost always formed four sides of a square the centre of which was open to the sky and carpeted with smooth green turf on one side the cloister walls were pierced by arched windows which however were not filled with glass so that they were really almost like stone verandas so the monks had plenty of fresh air indeed they sometimes had too much for we read of a monk at canterbury writing to a friend in france and telling him that he would have to give up writing entirely until the spring as his fingers were so stiff and swollen with the cold that he could no longer hold the pen 
in many places these cloisters with their beautiful carving have been destroyed but here at canterbury they are perfect and we can walk around them and look at the smooth green square of turf which they enclose which is now used as a burying place well if we stand at the corner of these cloisters just where the door leads into them from the chapel of the martyrdom and look across in a slanting direction to the opposite corner we will see where the bishop's palace stood in the time of becket it was connected with that corner of the cloisters just as the cathedral is joined to this corner about five o'clock on a dark december evening just four days after christmas becket was seated in his chamber at the palace talking to his friends while in the dimly lit church the monks were singing vespers suddenly the seneschal appeared and announced that four knights had come from france from the king bearing a message to the archbishop becket must have known that their coming meant no good to him but he showed no sign of fear and ordered them to be brought into his presence the seneschal ushered them in and at once they began to insult and upbraid the prelate and he on his side answered them sharply and proudly they demanded in the king's name that he should return to france he replied that nothing would induce him to do so so the storm of words went on and at last the four knights rushed impatiently out calling on their followers to arm and to close the doors of the palace so that none of the townspeople could enter they had determined to kill the archbishop and they knew that if any of the citizens of canterbury got the least idea of what they were about to do they would crowd in and rescue him meanwhile becket's handful of faithful friends entreated him to seek safety in the cathedral for in those days people had such reverence for churches that it seemed to them impossible that any one could be wicked enough to commit an act of violence there becket did not want to go he believed that he was in the right and he did not want to appear as if he were afraid but his friends were so impressed with the danger he was in that they took hold of his cassock and half pushed half pulled him along the cloisters one of his clerks whose name was henry of auxerre going before him bearing aloft the staff with a cross on the end of it which was always carried before the primate can you picture the sad disorderly little procession the cross-bearer in front the group of terrified clergy behind forcing along their unwilling master the only man who was not afraid as they reached this low door which leads to the cathedral the sound of hurrying footsteps is heard the four knights have armed themselves and are running around the other side of the cloisters trying to catch the archbishop before he can enter the church but they are too late becket's friends have got him safely inside the little transept and are turning around to bar the door behind them but the archbishop would not have it so and we cannot help admiring his splendid bravery god's house was meant to be always open so that whoever will can enter and he would not have its doors shut for him he had begun to climb the steps into the choir but when he heard the iron bars being fastened he turned back and undid them with his own hands away ye cowards i command ye not to shut the door he thundered the church must not be made into a castle so the door was left open and the knights rushed in 
and here just where this tiny stone at our feet marks the spot the archbishop was struck down and killed it was a wild and wicked deed and no sooner was it done than it was repented of but no repentance could undo it and what weighed more heavily than anything else on the murderers minds was the awful thought that they had killed a priest one of god's ministers in the very courts of god's house the place of all others where they should have been careful of their actions with hushed voices and trembling limbs they stole out of the building into the midst of a fearful thunderstorm which broke just then in all its fury over the little city and as they passed in haste along the narrow streets and mounting their horses rode away into the darkness i think they must have felt like cain for they must have known that ever afterwards they would be marked men for no matter what the archbishop's faults had been the whole of christendom would regard the deed with shuddering horror because it had been committed within the walls of a church of god meanwhile in the cathedral the poor monks had fastened the doors and put out the lights and hidden themselves away in dark corners too dumbfounded and terrified even to venture near the dead man's body so here it lay unheeded on the stone floor till far on in the night when the monks gathered courage and came out of their hiding-places and lifting it reverently laid it on a bier before the high altar next morning they buried it hurriedly and by stealth in the crypt for they had heard a rumour that they would not be allowed to bury it in the cathedral where so many other archbishops rested but it only remained in the crypt some fifty years for the story of that dark night's work soon spread through the length and breadth of the land and all over europe and even to rome itself and everybody was so horrified at the thought of an archbishop being murdered in his own cathedral that they forgot becket's faults and only remembered that he died in defence of what he thought were the rights of the church and they spoke of him as a martyr and a saint and insisted that his body should be taken from its grave in the crypt and placed in a magnificent shrine which stood in this empty space which we see if we ascend these steps near the high altar and passing behind it enter trinity chapel look how worn and uneven these steps are almost as if they had been fretted away by running water do you know why they are fretted away like that because thousands of men and women pilgrims from all parts of europe from england and ireland scotland and france spain and italy once climbed up them on their knees on their way to visit the shrine of st thomas of canterbury for no shrine in the world was more famous and none was richer in ornaments and it was from these pilgrims that the steps take their name of pilgrims steps have you ever heard of geoffrey chaucer's canterbury tales it is an old book written in curious verse and quaint old-world english and if you opened it perhaps you could not think it looked very interesting but it tells you of a company of pilgrims who set out from london one april morning to make a pilgrimage to becket's shrine in canterbury there were twenty-nine of them and some of them were rich and some were poor some were knights and barons and some were nuns one was a learned scholar from oxford and one was a poor unlearned cook 
and they all told stories by the way and they all came into the great cathedral and prayed at the shrine and they slept at a little inn the checkers of the hope you can see it still at the corner of the lane which leads from the cathedral precincts to the high street and then they all travelled back to london again they were only people in chaucer's imagination of course but to read about them gives us a very good idea of the companies of pilgrims with whom the streets of the little city would be crowded in the middle ages for three hundred years this state of things went on and the shrine grew more and more famous and ever richer and more magnificent as kings and princes and nobles came to pray at it and to leave their offerings of gold or silver or jewels then came the beginning of the reformation and henry the eighth's quarrel with the pope in his name orders were given that all the great shrines were to be destroyed and the gold and jewels with which they were adorned put in the king's treasury so the gorgeous shrine at canterbury was broken to pieces and the bones of becket were either destroyed or thrown into some unknown grave for no one knows to-day where they are lying before we leave the story of becket and turn to that of the black prince whose tomb we see close beside the spot where the famous shrine stood let us go down to the crypt and look at a stone slab in the floor which marks the spot where becket's body was buried for the first fifty years after his death it also marks the spot where one of the most extraordinary scenes in english history took place we have seen how becket helped to make henry the second king of england and what friends the two young men were at first before henry insisted on making thomas archbishop we have seen too how henry's words spoken in haste in france were the cause of becket's death well no sooner was the archbishop dead than the king was seized with terrible remorse it seemed to him that he was just as guilty of the rash deed as if he had struck down the primate with his own sword and to add to his distress serious troubles began to fall on his kingdom while he was engaged in war with france the people at home rose in rebellion the scots invaded the northern counties and to make matters worse a stormy and inclement winter brought the country to the verge of starvation the common people in their ignorance and superstition said as the thunder crashed and the wind roared that it was the blood of st thomas crying to god for vengeance and the king almost beside himself with remorse and perplexity came to the conclusion that the only thing he could do to obtain mercy from god for his distressed country and forgiveness for his own sin was to do penance after the custom of the time and humble himself before god and man on the very spot where the archbishop was buried so he hurried home from france and one rainy july day the people of canterbury trembling with awe and wonder saw their king walk barefoot through the muddy streets with nothing on but a long woolen shirt the dress of a penitent pilgrim and a cloak thrown over it to keep off the rain attended by a train of bishops and monks into the cathedral the strange procession went up the aisle and down into the crypt then throwing off his cloak and kneeling at the archbishop's grave henry solemnly confessed his sin owning that it was his hasty words that had led to the murder and expressing his deep sorrow for them 
after which he allowed each of the bishops present to give him five strokes with a rod and each of the monks there were eighty of them to give him three strokes then the ordeal being over he spent the night in the dark crypt alone leaning we are told against one of these stone pillars so ended this sad story of broken friendship and pride and angry words and violent death there were faults on both sides as we say and because becket was the one who suffered most he had the sympathy of the people and his name was held in honour but we must not forget that although the way in which the king acknowledged his sin and tried to make amends for it seems strange and unnatural to us yet to him and to the people of his day it was the sign of his deep repentance and he did not shrink from it as to many of us might have done now let us turn to the story of the black prince which is so much brighter and more hopeful than that of becket you know a great deal about this prince from your history books but somehow he seems more real to us when we stand beside his grave at canterbury and see the very armour he wore when he rode to battle he was the eldest son of king edward the third and gentle philippa of hainault who as you may have heard were married in york minster he spent his school days at queen's college oxford and when he was still a boy he became a soldier when he was only sixteen he went with his father to fight in france and after king edward had ravaged the whole country to the very gates of paris he was retreating with his forces in the direction of flanders when the french king philip with an immense army came up to him and offered instant battle the english had encamped near the forest of crecy which gave its name to the fight i need not describe the battle to you you know about it as well or better than i do how the king did not fight at all but went up to the top of a windmill which stood on a hill near by and remained there watching how things went on leaving the boy prince in his black armour to direct the soldiers and how when the lad was in danger and some of the english nobles indignant perhaps at what seemed to them his father's carelessness spurred their horses up to the windmill and called out to the king that his son was in peril he answered let the child win his spurs and let the day be his you know also how the child did win his spurs and gained the day helped by the fact that a terrific thunderstorm came on and the italian bowmen who had been fighting for the french allowed their bowstrings to get so wet that they could not draw them while the english archers who were more accustomed to storms and carried their bows in cases kept their bowstrings dry and afterwards used them with deadly effect no wonder that after that day the english nation worshipped their brave young prince but besides being brave he was gentle and courteous a true knight ten years passed away and once more he was leading an english army at poitiers in france the odds were terribly against him he had eight thousand men king john of france had sixty thousand but as the english army was surrounded he must either fight or surrender god is my help said the dauntless prince when he saw the number of his enemies i must fight them as best i can and fight them he did and conquered them and the french king fell a prisoner into his hands do you remember how he treated him 
he had a banquet prepared for him in his own tent and stood behind his chair and waited on him himself and when the french king would have remonstrated and said that it was not fitting that he the vanquished should be waited on by his conqueror he pointed out that the french monarch was a king while he had not as yet attained that dignity but was only a subject and therefore must show reverence to his superiors and you remember also that when they appeared together in the streets of london and the curious citizens thronged out to meet them ready to jeer at the unfortunate king who had lost his kingdom and to cheer their own prince who had gained it they were rebuked and silenced and taught a lesson of generosity and courtesy by the sight of the vanquished monarch riding in the place of honour on a fine white charger while by his side dressed in plain clothes on a little black palfrey rode the young man who had conquered him the king and the prince had landed at sandwich and on their way up to london they had stayed for a night at canterbury and had visited the shrine of thomas a becket we do not know if the prince had ever been in the little kentish town before but it appears that on this visit he was greatly delighted with the beauty of its cathedral and he made up his mind that when he died he would be buried there six years after this he fell in love with his cousin joan who was so beautiful that she was called the fair maid of kent but because she was his cousin there was some trouble about his marrying her and when at last he was allowed to do so he was so glad that he founded as a thank-offering a beautiful little chapel or chantry down in the crypt of canterbury cathedral other sixteen years passed and the prince lay dying in the palace of westminster we have seen what a brave and courteous gentleman he was and the way in which he met death shows us that he was a fearless christian as well when he knew that he was dying he made his will we can still read it written in old world french in it he commits his soul to god and directs that his body should be taken to canterbury and buried in the chapel that he had founded in the crypt he also gave orders that his tomb was to be decorated by his crest three ostrich feathers and his arms and on them were to be inscribed his mottoes humant and ishdeen further that round his tomb an inscription was to be written clearly so that all men might read it telling how little the grandeur and pomp and success of this life matters when the time comes for a man to die he died the day after he had made this will on trinity sunday thirteen seventy six his commands were obeyed in part at least for in the midst of great mourning his body was taken to canterbury but people felt somehow that it was not fitting that this great and chivalrous and well-beloved prince should be buried down in the dark crypt so they laid him here in trinity chapel close to the shrine of becket look they have placed his effigy above his tomb so that all coming generations might know what manner of man he was there he lies in full armour his head resting on his helmet his feet with the likeness of the spurs he won at crecy his hands joined in the last prayer he offered up on his deathbed the prayer in which he asked forgiveness for himself and his enemies over him hangs a wooden canopy on which is painted a curious representation of the holy trinity and above all fastened to the beam from which the canopy is hung are the things which i think will interest you most of all and which he himself desired should hang above his tomb 
there is his helmet and his jointed gauntlets his shield and circuit tarnished and faded now but once ablaze with the golden leopards of england and the fleur-de-lis of france and his sword scabbard which once contained his sword which it is said was carried away by oliver cromwell then before we turn away let us bring our eyes down to the tomb once more and notice the ostrich feathers carved around it the prince of wales feathers which we know so well for they have been borne as a crest by the heir to the throne of england ever since the days of the black prince let us also look at the mottoes woven around them humant or hochmuth high spirits and ich dien i serve do they not tell us the secret of the wonderful influence which this prince who died so long ago wielded he served but he served nobly willingly with the high and generous spirit and the kindly tact of a good man i think the service which he rendered to all who were round about him whether they were his friends or whether they were his foes was the service which st paul meant when he said whatsoever ye do do it heartily as to the lord and not to men if we tried to look at all the tombs in this grand cathedral and to recall the stories of all those who lie buried in them we might spend days here and unluckily we have not time to do that but before we leave it let us go down to the crypt once more for although it is so quiet and solemn i think the crypt is quite as interesting as the cathedral above you remember how i told you that the prince had had some trouble over his marriage and how when it was safely accomplished he founded a chapel or chantry here as a thank-offering we see this chapel on our left-hand side as we enter but you say in astonishment it looks as if people worshipped in it to-day here is a pulpit and there are chairs and books yes people do worship in it to-day and that is one of the glories of canterbury cathedral it is the mother cathedral of england and in it for over a thousand years the stately ritual of the national church has been carried on but it was big enough and generous enough to spare a little corner of its crypt as a refuge to a congregation of strangers and foreigners who came to this country when they could not worship god in their own way with safety in their own native land you have read about the huguenots the protestants of france and flanders who were so persecuted in the sixteenth century that they fled abroad for safety many of them went to switzerland and germany and many of them came to england they were mostly cloth or silk weavers and it was a very good thing for england that they did come for they brought the knowledge of their craft with them and taught it to english people a colony of them settled at canterbury and as they could only speak french and had neither church nor workshops and as their manner of worship was different from that of the english queen elizabeth said that they could have the crypt of the cathedral to work in on weekdays and to have service in on sundays so they set up their looms here and worked at them until they had earned enough money to take workrooms elsewhere and they took possession of the black prince's chantry and used it as their church and though they only wove in the crypt for a short time they worshipped here always and their descendants worshipped here after them and even now every sunday a french service is held after the manner of the huguenots in this little chapel
End of section two.